Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Happy to have you here on this dreary day. I'm Judge April Wood, and to my right is Judge Julie Flood, and to my left is Judge uh, Michael Statting. We are assisted today in the courtroom by our assistant clerk of court, uh, Ms. Delaney Nagesi, and by our court marshal, Officer Richard Rumiard. We have one matter that is on our docket today for oral ar arguments. It's the matter of uh, KC and MA out of Watauga County. And if counsel is ready, um, we can go ahead and begin oral arguments. Would you like to reserve any time for rebuttal? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I would like to reserve uh, 10 minutes for rebuttal time. All right. Whenever you're ready. May it please the court. My name is Jackie Brammer, and I represent the appellate respondent mother. And I'm joined by Jeff Miller, who represents the respondent father. And again, I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal time. Um, we think this case is fairly simple and straightforward that under the juvenile code, when a trial court hears a petition and then concludes that it's lacking clear and convincing evidence after a full adjudicatory hearing, and then it dismisses the petition with prejudice, thereby returning the parties to pre-petition status, and it terminates jurisdiction, that thereafter the petition is dead, and so is the court's jurisdiction, and it cannot be revived by a post-trial motion under the rules of civil procedure, such as Rule 59 or 60. So we think this court's precedent is clear that the rules of civil procedure are only gap fillers that are necessary when the language of the juvenile code is not clear and express. We think here the language of the juvenile code is clear and express that when a petition has been fully heard and adjudicated and dismissed on the merits and court's jurisdiction is terminated, that thereafter, again, the petition is dead, the court's jurisdiction is over. So the case is over. Now, in the alternative, if this court is inclined to consider that the trial court does have some remnants of jurisdiction to consider a Rule 5960 motion, we think this court's law is also clear that under any definition of Rule 59 or 60 under any of the subsections, that none of them would apply on these facts. We think whether or not the trial court properly allowed a Rule 5960 motion would be a legal argument with legal, a legal issue with legal arguments, which will be entitled to de novo review. And we think that under any description of the facts here, that the petitioner uh, failed to present their case adequately the first time around, and then thereafter, they tried to use a post-trial motion to get a second bite at the apple. Now, this court's precedent, uh, there's a number of cases in the briefs and the filings before the court that describe a second bite of the apple as when a, a non-prevailing party tries to represent the same arguments again or to present arguments or evidence they should have presented the first time around but didn't due to either a lack of due diligence or inexcusable neglect, that that's a second bite of the apple. So we think here that's clearly what happened on the facts, that the petitioner was allowed a second bite of the apple, and we think that when the trial court allowed that, that was a... a um, a, misre a misapprehension of the law or reversible error of the law. Uh, and the petition, excuse me, the respondents are entitled to relief from that. Now, in the next alternative, if this court is not inclined to see this as a second bite of the apple issue, we think that um, under Appley's own construction of the law, they're only asking that this court hold that the trial court had authority to make clerical or procedural amendments to the order. And we think here this is a clear substantive change to the original dismissal order after termination of jurisdiction. We think this court's law is clear, again, that a substantive modification to an order um, changes it in a manner that affects the party's rights and alters the effect or the outcome of the original order. So we think here going from a dismissal and the children going home to changing that to an adjudication 
which carries with it collateral legal consequences. We think that is clearly a substantive change to the order that appellees are not even arguing that uh, the trial court had authority to do. And lastly, if we're just getting down to the order itself, we're not talking about questions of jurisdiction or Rule 59 or 60 or any of that. We're just talking about the adjudication disposition order itself. We think there's no evidentiary or fact-finding basis in the order itself as a matter of law that would support the judgment. And we think that uh, what this court should do is dismiss all dismissal orders as void for lacking subject matter jurisdiction, or in the alternative, we ask this court to remand the matter to the trial court to um, dismiss the petition for lacking clear and convincing evidence and return the parties to pre-petition status. Is there, at any, is there any point that you can, in your mind, that you can think of where a Rule 59 or Rule 60 motion would be appropriate after the court has dismissed a petition? We're talking about a, a dismissal with prejudice. Yes. So, um, if, if you can, give me the distinction between what you think is the difference between a dismissal without prejudice and a dismissal with prejudice in the context of Rule 59, Rule 60. Okay, so the case of NRA EH that uh, petitioners are going to refer to, that is a voluntary dismissal case. And the difference between that set of facts and this set of facts is that here the trial court heard all the evidence. So once we've had a full adjudication on the merits and there's been a hearing and entry of order and a termination of jurisdiction, we feel that is a termination of jurisdiction, that that the juvenile code language is clear that that terminates the court's jurisdiction. That Do you contend that the difference is that in NRAE EH, it was a voluntary dismissal by the Department of Social Services and not a dismissal by the court? Yes. Versus this case as a dismissal by the court? Yes, Your Honor. And also that that voluntary dismissal occurred prior to the adjudicatory hearing. So it wasn't just that the department was the sort of the moving party and not the court sua sponte, but also that the department didn't have a chance to present their case there. Um, but in this case, uh, the department had a chance to present uh, their evidence, and they, they rested and closed. So we, we think once there has been a full hearing on the merits, and the court has concluded there's no clear and convincing evidence and dismissed the petition with prejudice under 7B807, that that is a, a termination of jurisdiction. And we think that we think that the outcome is sort of commiserate with what the juvenile code says. If you look at a handful of statutes put together. So, so 7, 7B200, A through B, establishes that the juvenile court's jurisdiction begins with a petition that alleges abuse, neglect, or dependency. So that's 7B200A. Then 7B200B says that that jurisdiction extends to the parents once there's been a, an adjudication of abuse, neglect, or dependency. So 7B200A and B establish that the court's beginning of jurisdiction is a petition that alleges abuse, neglect, or dependency, and then an adjudication. So there, there is no discussion in 7B200A through B that talks about what kind of jurisdiction do we have after there's been a termination of jurisdiction. So 7B201A says that the original exclusive jurisdiction that comes with a valid petition and, a, and an adjudication, that jurisdiction continues until it's terminated by court order until the child reached the age of majority. So, so the question might be what kind of court order would terminate the court's jurisdiction? So 7B807 gives us the answer. 7B807 says that when a court hears a petition and concludes it's lacking clear and convincing evidence, dismisses the petition and returns the parties to pre-petition status, that that is an effective termination of jurisdiction. If we read 7B807 together with 7B200, A through B, we get the nexus that says we have a petition and after it's been heard by the trial court, 
if there is a dismissal with prejudice that the trial court is lacking clear and convincing, excuse me, that the, the department has not presented clear and convincing evidence, then we dismiss the petition with prejudice and terminate jurisdiction. Because 7B200 A and B, again, only says that the exclusive original jurisdiction is over children alleged to be abused, neglected, dependent, or adjudicated to be abused, neglected, or dependent. So if there's a dismissal, clearly there's no more outstanding allegations, and the allegations have been adjudicated to lack clear and convincing evidence. So that is an effective termination of jurisdiction. So then when we get to 7B201B, it becomes obvious that when the trial court's jurisdiction is terminated, they can't enforce or modify any previously entered orders that affect the child's custody, uh, placement, or guardianship. So, so 7B201B says that when jurisdiction has been terminated, we can't modify or change any orders that have been entered. And it also gives us the juvenile code, 7B201B, but also other parts of the juvenile code, gives us the answer to what DSS's remedy is in this situation. If there's been an involuntary dismissal after full adjudication, termination of jurisdiction, dismissal of prejudice, et cetera. So the answer to what DSS can do is they can file a new petition. That's what they always can do. Or they can file a notice of appeal. 7B201B says that the court's termination of jurisdiction doesn't extend to certain kinds of orders or an independent basis for jurisdiction, for the trial court reacquiring it. So one example would be a termination petition. If there's been a dismissal in the lower court, DSS can always, down the road, if they think they have a basis, file a termination petition. Obviously, if there's a termination order, that's another part of 7B201B that would survive a termination of jurisdiction, the effect of that order. A 7B911 order is another type of order that would survive a termination of jurisdiction. But the last part of 7B201B, one of the subsections, is that DSS can always investigate um, allegations of abuse, neglect, or dependency and file a new petition. We think that's the answer of what should have happened here. But they can't file a new petition alleging the same allegations that were already adjudicated in the original petition. Yes, that, Your Honor, that is correct. But they, again, there's also another answer. If they, they could file a notice of appeal of this involuntary dismissal, that's by right under 7B1001. So that's also at, at, their, um, at their disposal. But if they received a new allegation of something going on in that same household, so if there's a termination of jurisdiction and the children go home with the parents, and then a week later, there's another allegation. Um, it's not as if DSS's hands are tied from investigating this family, again, or this allegation. 7B302 always gives DSS the recourse to investigate allegations of abuse, neglect, and dependency. And 7B201, excuse me, 7B200A says that is the beginning of the trial court's jurisdiction. So if there's been a termination of jurisdiction and a full adjudication on the merits, dismissal of prejudice of a certain petition with certain allegations, the next day, if they get a new allegation, they can still investigate that. If it, if it shows a risk of harm, they can file a new petition. So we think that's what the Juvenile Code says is supposed to happen in situations like this. And we think, again, the language is clear. That there isn't a need for Rule 59 and 60 under the language of the Juvenile Code to deal with what happens after a termination of jurisdiction, but DSS wants the same evidence considered again. We don't think that's a question the Juvenile Code um, lacks an answer to. Um, so, so yes, we think the language of the juvenile code is clear and expressed that what happens after an adjudication of the merits and a dismissal with prejudice is that the parties are returned to pre-petition status. That, that language is key because pre-petition status shows us that, that there is no need for the court to have any sort of retention of jurisdiction of any kind to consider matters because everyone's returned to pre-petition status. Uh, the cases that are cited in the briefs uh, support this reading of the juvenile code. In Ray TRP, uh, there was a adjudication, and then I think it went on to have a custody award. And then on, on appeal, the issue was 
we don't have a valid petition here that was verified. So we argue there's no subject matter jurisdiction. And the North Carolina Supreme Court said that if there's no valid verified petition, that everything after that is void. That no matter whether you had an adjudication, disposition, or a custody order, anything after, a, anything that's lacking jurisdiction is void and parties return to pre-petition status. And the answer is to file a new petition. That's what NRA TRP says as well. NRA AL is another case in the briefs that raises a similar question. In that one, what happened was DSS filed a petition against the parents, and then the mother relinquished while the father was still not exactly in the picture, but they had filed a petition against him. So DSS voluntarily dismissed their petition. The father surfaces later. Then the trial court tries to exercise subject matter jurisdiction over the father. They started entering review orders and permanency planning orders, and then there was a termination hearing and a termination order. So on appeal, the father argued in NRAAL that there was no subject matter jurisdiction over him because the original petition had been voluntarily dismissed. This court agreed and said there was no subject matter jurisdiction after the voluntary dismissal. Now, the court ultimately affirmed the termination order because there was an independent basis for jurisdiction via the proper termination uh, petition and order. So, so we think NRAAL also supports this reading of the juvenile code, that after a termination of jurisdiction, that the, the courts, the petition is dead and the only way for the petition, the only way for the court to reacquire jurisdiction is via a new petition, a new allegation of abuse, neglect, or dependency, or a notice of appeal. One more case in the briefs that discusses this is NRA SDA. NRA SDA says that the only mechanism to get to a petition is through 7B302, what happened, which would be DSS investigating abuse, neglect, or dependency reports. So in, seven, in um, an NRA SDA, what happened was there was a report of abuse, neglect, or dependency, and I believe it was Rutherford County investigated it and said that we don't find there's a risk of harm here. Then Lincoln County, based on the same allegation, the same evidence, filed a petition and tried to get an adjudication. On appeal, this court said that because the mechanism of 7B302 had already been used by Rutherford County. The same stuff, the same evidence, same allegation, couldn't be used by another county to get an adjudication. So under 7B302, there was no subject matter jurisdiction. So 7B302 is the mechanism to get to 7B201, excuse me, 7B200 and 201 after a termination of jurisdiction or a complete absence of jurisdiction. So again, we think here the language of the Juvenile Code is clear and express. It answers this question for us. We don't need the rules of civil procedure, and they don't apply here. In NRA AL, was there a Rule 60 motion filed? Um, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I believe it was just that there had been that voluntary dismissal, and then they had, when the, when the father surfaced, the court went on entering uh, review hearings and uh, review, re, excuse me, review orders and permanency planning orders. So no, I do, I do not believe the question in um, AL was about a Rule 60. And SDH? And SDA, no, also that was not concerning a Rule 60 motion. Thank you. Um, we think those cases apply here because they talk about what happens when there is no jurisdiction. That's, that's what we think the application of NRAAL and NRAAL-SDA are for. But in the alternative, if this court is inclined to think the trial court um, had jurisdiction to consider the Rule 5960 motion, we think that um, clearly it's the second bite of the apple. So what we mean by that is that under this court's law, uh, there's a host of cases cited in our briefs and filings before this court that if the petitioner or the non-prevailing party is attempts to use a post-trial motion based on either the same facts, same evidence, same allegations, same, same basic issues, um, uses a post-trial motion for that, or they use it to present the same 
excuse me, different evidence, but that they could have presented the first time around, but didn't due to lack of due diligence or inexcusable neglect or something like that, that that is a second bite at the apple. And again, we think this is a legal issue with legal arguments. If you look at the, um, the motion before the trial court when this was discussed, the petitioner's attorney said that this is a legal issue with legal arguments. So we think that this is a clear de novo issue um, entitled to de, de novo review. So, so under Rule 59 and 60, um, we think the cases in the briefs show that, again, you can't get a second bite at the apple. Um, in Briley, that discussed whether or not the, you could use a post-trial motion to get relief when the non-prevailing party had failed to timely designate expert witnesses. And the North Carolina Supreme Court said neither ignorance nor carelessness on the part of an attorney will provide relief under a post-trial motion. I think they were specifically referring to Rule 60B, but I think the principle still holds that if there has been some some lack of due diligence or inexcusable neglect on the part of an attorney that you can't use a post-trial motion to sort of try to revive a case. Um, Apex v. Rubin is sort of a similar case that talks about, uh, I think the issue there was eminent domain, and the lower court found that the taking was private, but the non-prevailing party tried to use a Rule 5960 motion uh, and on appeal argued that um, that they had basically more evidence to show. We didn't, we didn't know we were gonna lose. I think that's what they said. They said they did not, it was not known or reasonably anticipated that this evidence would be necessary, but given the court's ruling in the matter, the court should consider this evidence. That's what they said in Apex v. Rubin, uh, the, the non-prevailing party. And this court said, you can't do that. The lower court said the same thing, that, that presenting evidence that you had the first time around that you didn't use because you didn't either know you would need it or because you, you. Well, here in this sorry, case, DSS isn't, well, I guess they were arguing they were presenting new evidence, but in reality, it looks like their motion says that <clears throat> they wanted to present a transcript of the actual forensic interview, which was viewed by the court, uh, because they believed it was difficult to hear when played in court and could, could contributed to why the court ruled as it did. So talk to me about what your response to that is. Uh, yes, Your Honor. So we believe, again, even if the trial court didn't fully hear recording that's still uh, a valid hearing under the law. We, we think that there, there is no sort of guarantee in the juvenile code or under the law that you get a hearing under optimal conditions. What you get is sort of a day in court to present your, your, your case. So I think what, what the juvenile code says is that you get a chance to present your evidence before the court. The court gets to consider your evidence. But it doesn't say that you get to guarantee that the court reads every word of a document that you submit or that they get you get 100% of their attention every single time they're sitting on the bench. Instead, what the law says is that you get a day in court. You get a chance to present your evidence and to get the judge's impression of it and a ruling on it. And here, of course, we had an entry of judgment and a termination of jurisdiction. So if, if somehow the petitioner thought there was a problem, they had many means at their disposal other than a Rule 5960 after an entry of judgment. The, day, the hearing was in late October 2022, and the... Entry of order was in late November 2022, and then the Rule 5960 motion was in early December. So we have passage of time roughly of six weeks before anything was done about this inability to hear something. It was, nothing was done that day. No one said, I, I can't hear this recording. As a matter of fact, we have all kinds of uh, affirmative statements on the record from people discussing the contents of this recording. So, and, and we have the, the so we have a motion at the close of the petitioner's evidence. After the video recording is played, the petitioner rests, and then there's a motion to dismiss, and the trial court denies the motion to dismiss, which we think it, it kind of supports the, the reading that that was valid evidence to move on 
uh, to be rebutted by the respondents. Um, if the trial court didn't hear it or if the petitioner thought there was a problem, I don't know why they would have rested. I don't know why the motion would have been granted. We think that the record evidence shows that, that this was a valid hearing um, where the recording was able to be played and everyone was able to, to, to at least have a say about it and discuss it uh, in testimony, cross-examination of the father, discuss the video at length, the closing arguments, discuss the video. At oral rendition, the trial court said they thought the child that was in the video interview was articulate. So I think there's a wealth of evidence here that shows that we had a valid hearing uh, and a valid consideration of the transcript. Um, it appears here that the trial court relied on Austin versus Federal Express Corporation as support for granting its Rule 59, Rule 60. And of course, I note that that is an industrial commission case, but it looks as though that's the case that the trial court relied on, saying that the um, <clears throat> it it was its order was unclear. Yes, your response to that. Um, well, your honor. We think that Alston again stands for what you just said, that, that the trial court can amend its order when it's unclear. Um, in that case, I think the language in the opinion is literally that the, the appellate court and the, they didn't understand the ruling, basically. That, that the, the, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it was somehow indecipherable when reading it. I don't think the trial court dismissal order was indecipherable upon reading it. Um, so. Well, what was unclear about the order? Uh, it said DSS didn't meet its burden and dismissed with prejudice. So what, what did the trial court say was unclear about this original order? I think what the trial court says is unclear about the order is that the trial court says they did not hear the recording until they, they didn't understand the recording until they read the transcript that DSS provided. I think that's the only thing that is being offered that is unclear about the original dismissal order. So the, uh, what was unclear was the evidence, not the order itself? Yes, the trial court's understanding of the video evidence that was presented the first time around, I think is what the trial court or, or what the trial court's order sort of implies and what they would say. Um, if there are no further questions right now, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Now we will hear from the department. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, my name is Brian Bernhardt. I am here as counsel for the guardian ad litem. With me is my co-counsel, is Chelsea, Chelsea Garrett, counsel for the Department of Social Services. Uh, I'd like to proceed a little bit uh, discussing some of the background that was not discussed uh, by appellant. This is more, we think, than a dry procedural case. This is a case that involves some of the things that are most important uh, to us, our family, our children, and the values that we hold in our home. This is a case about children being safe in their home, about mothers being safe in their home. Uh, and what counsel for the appellants didn't tell you uh, that is in the, the briefs of appellees is a detailed description of the facts that, that really happened that led us to this situation. Uh, the, but wasn't all that presented to the trial court during the original adjudication? Yes, ma'am. I just want to make sure the court's aware of that, and I'll move on if you are. And then the trial court found that the department had not met its burden by producing clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. So it's interesting, Your Honor. The original evidence was presented, two witnesses, and then the uh, video interview. Uh, and then a motion to dismiss was presented by the father's counsel. And at that point, that motion was denied. Uh, and then, as, as counsel mentioned, uh, the father testified. 
and then uh, the court dismissed for there being no clear cogent or convincing evidence. It's curious to us that if there wasn't clear cogent and convincing evidence, why the case wouldn't have been dismissed after DSS presented. And if it was the father's- Is that because the burden shifts at that point? I mean, at the very beginning, it's whether or not this has presented some sort of evidence that would support the petition. Yes. Which, at the motion to dismiss, the court said, eh, there was enough for the case to go on. And then after all the evidence was presented, that's when the court dismissed the case, right? Yes, Your Honor. And we Is think that, that how it normally happens? That's how it would normally happen, except if it happened that way, the trial court should have identified that it relied or believed more in the father. It should have made finding of facts, identifying that. The court's that. not required to do that, is it? I'm not aware whether it's required or not, but without having that evidence in the, having those findings in the order, it's unclear whether the uh, trial court believed the child or believed the father. It's it doesn't matter, right? Because the court is the ultimate uh, per judge of the credibility of the witnesses, and the court made findings as to why DSS didn't meet its burden, didn't it? Actually, the court only made a conclusion of law. It did not make a findings of fact. The only conclusion the court made is that DSS had not met its burden of clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. It did not state any finding of facts to support that conclusion. So if we had, if DSS had appealed at that point in time, then it would not have had a basis, any facts to, to argue uh, were not found by the trial court. It would not have had any facts to state were incorrect. Uh, so instead, in the name of judicial economy, what the trial court, what the DSS did at that point in time was file the Rule 59 Rule 60 motion. If the court will allow me, and I don't know if you will, I'm going to defer to Ms. Garrett to address the subject matter jurisdiction question. I'm happy to answer questions if that's where you want to go, but Ms. Garrett is more prepared than I am to address that. And I'd like to address the alternative argument that assuming there is subject matter jurisdiction, that the Rule 59, rule, alternatively Rule 60 motion, was proper before the court. I found it interesting uh, during counsel's arguments uh, that he noted that uh, there's no guarantee that a litigant is entitled to a hearing under optimal conditions, which almost sounds like we're saying as long as there's a hearing, we don't really care if there's due process. Now, he didn't say that, and I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but that's what it sounds like. And in this case, yes, there was a gap between the hearing and the, and the order, and then less than 10 days before the Rule 5960 motion was filed, which makes it timely. It was only after the order was entered that DSS counsel, as set forth in the Rule 5960 motion, believed that it was possible that the trial court judge did not hear all the evidence in the video interview. Now, in all the briefs, we talk about how Rule 59 and Rule 60 motions are extreme remedies. And I think that's absolutely the case. No lawyer wants to make a motion to the court saying, Judge, we know you ruled this way, but we think you're wrong. We'd like you to look at it again. Uh, you're inviting a order that comes back and says not the most positive things. But in this case, in this case, when it was suggested to the judge that perhaps the judge had not heard all the evidence, and asked the judge to please re-look at the evidence just to make sure the judge heard it, the judge actually came back, issued an order that was uh, full of a culpa. Essentially, well, explicitly said that he did not hear all the evidence. And had he heard all the evidence, he would not have ruled the way he did. We talk about extraordinary circumstances as being necessary under Rule 60 in the order itself, paragraph well, 9. didn't really have any reason at that point 
to think that the trial court didn't hear the evidence except for its stated um, statement in the rule, 59 Rule 60, where it says, DSS respectfully requests this court to reconsider its ruling in light of circumstances, certain inconsistencies in which the evidence and the court's ruling, DSS believes in good faith that certain key evidence, that being a video or forensic interview of one of the juveniles, was difficult to hear when played in court and could have contributed to why the court ruled as it did. If DSS believed that it was difficult to hear in the courtroom, why didn't DSS then do something about it at the time of the hearing? DSS didn't believe it was difficult to hear until the order came out and DSS didn't prevail. Because they, DSS didn't agree with the court's ruling? Not because DSS didn't agree with the court's ruling, but because the statements made in the video interview, interview by Casey were of a type, and they're identified in the memo, uh, I'm sorry, in the Rule 5960 motion uh, that DSS believed would typically result in, a, in an adjudication uh, of neglect. And in this case, when that order- Didn't the court say DSS could have at least presented some evidence of hospital records from you know, mom's alleged injuries, or could have at least presented dad's criminal record? DSS just didn't do what DSS was supposed to do. Isn't that what the court said when it DSS did? said those things. But interestingly enough, once the, once the trial court judge actually read the transcripts, which the trial court judge acknowledged was identical to the video interview, suddenly the trial court judge didn't need any of those things. So isn't that just the court reconsidering exactly the same evidence? And that doesn't seem to be what the purpose of Rule 59 or Rule 60 is, that if you're presenting exactly the same evidence. I think that I would uh, compare it differently. I would compare it to a trial court judge uh, who hears a week-long trial and then goes back to this chambers afterwards and does a myriad of other things and then a week or two or three weeks later when a transcript of the hearings is presented to them uh, and they decide they're going to make a decision or write their opinion goes and looks at the evidence and the documents presented and reads the transcript and says okay now this is what i'm going to do that to me is not any different than in this case the judge reading the transcript of the interview had the transcript been different than the interview then i would acknowledge that DSS was trying to present different and additional information that it could and perhaps should have presented to the trial court. But that's not what happened in this case. Did DSS have presented the transcript at the time of the hearing? Uh, it's my understanding the transcript was not prepared at the time of hearing. But DSS presumably had that forensic interview for a long time prior to the adjudication hearing, so they could have presented the transcript at the time of the hearing, couldn't they have? Based on the uh, last statements in the Rule 5960 motion, uh, it appears that the transcript was being, being uh, uh, prepared uh, as the 5960 motion was being filed, and at the hearing, uh, it was ready to be provided to the judge. Yes, sir. And if and if the uh, if the trial court couldn't hear the the video or whatever the, the interview, and subsequently they they read it and then they can see things, isn't that also true of the other people in the courtroom, including the attorneys uh, for the for the appellants now, and as well as maybe the the father when he's presenting his testimony? So maybe they don't know what kind of information to present to the court at that point in time. That would be possible, Your Honor, uh, with two caveats. Uh, the first is that counsel for parents has made it clear uh, that they did not have any difficult, difficulty hearing the evidence. Uh, that's in, in their briefs. Uh, and second, uh, the trial court judge's order indicates that based on where you were located in the courtroom, it was more or less difficult uh, to hear the recording. 
uh, and that he didn't know that he didn't hear everything in the video because he didn't hear all the video. And it wasn't until he read the transcript that he realized that he had missed some of the evidence in the video and that if he had had the transcript, which also means had he heard everything in the video, he would have ruled in favor of, uh, of DSS finding that there was clear, cogent, and convincing evidence uh, of neglect and ruled in their favor. Council had mentioned a few cases. Um, one of them, uh, I apologize. Judge Wood had asked about uh, the presentation of the transcript and if that had been presented uh, earlier, uh, what the impact uh, would have been. Uh, and when counsel uh, said that nobody in the courtroom acknowledged that they couldn't hear, um, that was an issue and that he believed that that goes to their side, their argument that it was easy to hear and that we are taking a second bite at the apple. Uh, our disagreement is that we are not taking a second bite at the apple, as I mentioned in the, in the analogy that I made. Our position on the Rule 5960 motion is we wanted to make sure the judge had all the evidence before him. It was not that the evidence or the order was necessarily unclear. It was that the judge had the evidence, didn't realize that the judge had the evidence, and when it was pointed out to the court that the evidence was there and the judge was able to review all the evidence, the judge realized and admitted as much in the order that the judge had made a mistake. Uh, we've all been practicing law for many years, and I think that we can all understand how infrequent it is that a judge will, in an order, acknowledge that they made a mistake, and that the judge doing so here is, as the judge himself described it, an extraordinary circumstance, which is required under Rule 60b-6, so I think we've satisfied that ruling. But we've also shown that under Rule 60b-1, the judge made a mistake. And I know we didn't argue 60b-1, uh, but there is case law. Uh, in the mother's brief talking about Pope versus Pope, which talks about how it doesn't matter which subsection of the rule that you cite to as long as you cite to Rule 59 or 60. So I would posit that even if we're not under the catch-all of Rule 60b-6, that we still have an opportunity under Rule 60b-1 to argue that the judge made a mistake, which the judge acknowledged in his order that he made a mistake, and that the Rule 59-60 motion Gave the, gave the trial court judge the opportunity to remedy that mistake. Well, isn't that purpose of that rule regarding mistake that the judge made a mistake of law or that the judge you know, made a mistake in its order, its written order, and it needs to be corrected, not that the judge made a mistake in the ruling because the judge allegedly didn't hear all of the recording that was already presented into evidence. Well, doesn't that mistake go to an actual like clerical mistake or mistake of law? So I'll, I'll answer in two parts. First, respectfully, I think your use of the word allegedly isn't necessary. The judge admitted that he didn't hear. Uh, having said that, I have not found any case law that supports the, the rule that you've just described. It may be that most commonly we're talking about mistakes of attorneys, uh, but here the mistake that we're referring to is a mistake by the judge. There's a separate section for clerical errors 
under 60A. We're not under 60A, we're under 60B1. So we're not talking about a clerical error, we're talking about a mistake, something done inadvertently. And the judge, inadvertently, for whatever reason, did not happen to hear all the evidence, as the trial court judge admitted. And once the trial court judge realized that he had not heard the evidence, as any judge might do weeks or months after a hearing when they're preparing their order, they review all the evidence. Once the judge reviewed all the evidence, realized that he had not taken into account all the evidence, the judge realized that he'd made a mistake, granted the Rule 59-60 motion, and proceeded to reconsider the dismissal. If there are no more questions, I'd like to give the rest of the time to my co-counsel. If there are more questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you. I think. No? No? Judge Fletcher, now. I'm all set. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Chelsea Garrett. I'm with DeSantee, Capua, and Garrett in Boone, Watauga County. I apologize for walking in late. I was white-knuckling it to get here on time. So, um, as um, my co-counsel indicated, uh, I um, was the trial court attorney um, and um, can assure you that I have uh, uh, ha had a lot of chance to think about all of this in hindsight. But um, uh, I'd like to start off with the last question you asked, Judge Wood. You asked um, uh, why, um, why the court would need to, um, I apologize, I, I had it written down and I'm looking for it. Um, You've asked a number of questions regarding what the court's options were and why the court's ruling on uh, the case it, it cited in its, in Austin, I think, um, in its ruling, uh, and also um, um, why a mistake, um, why this particular issue counts as a mistake um, when it was the court not hearing evidence, um, which it admits. Um, and I would submit that's exactly why we're here. I, I don't think the case law does um, actually limit it to um, a mistake by an attorney um, or a party. I also think that other rules already address clerical mistakes, so it can't be a clerical mistake. Um, it says mistake inadvertence, um, and um, it is intended to be, um, I think, vague to allow trial courts to address their own um, uh, issues or things that they perceive have occurred incorrectly during trial. That is why there is so much deference discussed in case law uh, to be given to trial courts. Um, in fact, it's, it's really hard um, to second guess uh, a trial court's decision to grant a Rule 60 motion. I would submit that it is not um, a question of law to be reviewed de novo, it is a question of abuse of discretion. Um, whether there was subject matter jurisdiction certainly should be reviewed de novo. But um, the reason it's abuse of discretion is because nobody else was there. That judge was there. Uh, and that judge can, um, can better consider everything it heard or he heard um, in the moment. Um, I personally believe that the issues of whether the judge um, was permitted to entertain a Rule 60, 59 motion, uh, and of course whether the court had subject matter jurisdiction bleed into one another um, in this case. Um, and I would submit, I think uh, Mr. Bramer argued um, in his opening that um, the appropriate remedy would have been for DSS to file an appeal. And I would submit that the, the very reason DSS, um, I did not file an appeal uh, is because I did not feel that that was um, actually an adequate remedy. Uh, I think that we are um, faced with a very unique set of facts 
Uh, and the reason that's not an adequate remedy, the other remedy was to, for DSS to file a new petition. The reason those are not, frankly, satisfactory remedies in the situation are that to file a new petition means to wait for something else to happen. Uh, we had clear, cogent, convincing evidence that the child said she saw her stepfather hit her mother. And then we have a number of other statements on the record um, in the forensic interview. Um, the reason that I believe um, the court did not, um, uh, did not hear that statement and is being genuine and honest when it says it didn't is because there was so much, frankly, circumstantial evidence in her interview. I remember sitting there thinking, She's talking about seeing, as you mentioned, the black eye. She's talking about hearing screaming. She's talking about all these things, none of which are eyewitness statements. And then she says, as we highlighted in our facts, um, when she's asked, how do you know? And she says, because I saw him hit her um, more than once. Did the court make a finding that he believed that the child was credible, but that DSS just didn't carry its burden because DSS didn't present criminal records of the father, DSS didn't present any hospital records of the mother, DSS was just relying on the forensic interview and the court said that wasn't enough. Your Honor, if the court had heard that statement, then, then 100%, then the court decided, I heard her say what she said, I heard her say I saw it, that one time wasn't enough or whatever he may have been thinking um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I, I don't believe that's enough. The, the reason. The reason I believe what he says, that he says he didn't hear it, is because there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And until you get to the eyewitness, which I will submit as the DSS attorney is plenty, you've got an eyewitness of a child uh, saying they saw it and then saying they're scared, that right there is neglect in definition. The, the reason I think he, he didn't hear it is because he, he heard her say all of these things, and they were all very compelling. And having hospital records to prove when that happened or who was there and what were the circumstances surrounding that would have helped us maybe win on circumstantial evidence. Um, the, um, I think you said police records uh, of the father or I think his um, uh, prior charges for drugs. Those things, but all of those things are still circumstantial. And I think he might have, he might have I think he was saying, and the reason he granted our motion was, this was all circumstantial, and if you brought more than just what she said, which was circumstantial evidence, it might have risen up to enough. But without that, all we have was circumstantial, and I, and I remember thinking, sitting there, and I wrote the motion accordingly, this doesn't make sense. He heard her say it, but he did, and he heard the stepfather's testimony, but he didn't say, I believe stepfather over child. There was no acknowledgement she said this, but that wasn't enough. The one witness of him hitting her wasn't enough. There was no acknowledgement of that and explaining it, which goes to what my co-counsel said. The trial court's not required to explain that. It is it. The trial court can just make findings without explaining why the court is making those particular findings. It's just presumed that the judge is making credibility determinations. He doesn't have to say, I find so-and-so more credible than the other person. Well, and Your Honor, I, I was looking for it when I was, um, and I heard you ask that question. I, I have a case, I reviewed it, and I don't, I don't think I brought it with me, but um, that, um, that actually does state, and I think this is in, mentioned uh, in our motion, at least not the law, but the, that the court does need to make a credibility finding. I would submit that the court cannot enter an order with a conclusion that we did not meet the burden without ex having any findings. And when you only have evidence that is conflicting, you have no other evidence. If all you have is two witnesses, 
I would submit the case law does say you have to decide which one you believe. Well, wouldn't the proper remedy to have been to have filed an appeal? Because you didn't present any new evidence. You presented right. exactly the same evidence. Right, right. And actually, Your Honor, I, I, we, we are not relying on the discovery of new evidence. Um, I actually think the fact that we're presenting the same evidence in the transcript form it makes our argument stronger. And, and the reason I say that is um, the, um, the, the submission of the transcript was not, I wouldn't say it was impossible, but according to the best evidence rule, the video was the best evidence. We are supposed to put that on. In fact, they could have objected to us submitting a transcript and not letting the court hear the video because the video is, um, you know, obviously is reactions, it's emotions, it's all the things you can't get on paper. Um, so in this rare situation, it just happened that the video, video was not, in fact, the best evidence because it turned out to be difficult to hear. The other thing that's going on is trial courts all the time have forensic interviews of children. Um, had it been an issue, I'm sure it would have been corrected. For whatever reason, this time it was an issue and, and uh, Mr. Bramer stated that, um, you know, we've got to just sort of take what we get in terms of our circumstances in the hearing. Um, but again, in the moment, I was straining to hear, others were straining to hear, appellants say they did hear. Um, but because the way the judge ruled. If you were ruled, to hear, then why didn't you do something to correct that problem at the time? I, mean, I was a trial court judge for 18 years, and I don't recall DSS not ever saying, oh, I can't really hear this. Right. And so, oh, can we turn up the volume? Or, Your Honor, can you not hear this? I mean, right. what was. It, right. Well, what, and what's, again, the, what's the basis for the belief we, the court couldn't hear it? Your Honor, um, in hindsight, I think we would have avoided a lot had I spoken up in the moment. But in fact, um, I have my client with me. My client is sitting there confirming, and I'm asking, did she say this? Yes. I'm consulting with my client because they'd already heard the forensic video, and so, uh, which was the DSS social worker. And so in the moment, I, was, I felt satisfied that I was hearing it and confirming it as I heard it. I, frankly, it was one of those moments where you think, I'm not going to tell the judge they can't hear it. If they can hear it, they, if they can't hear it, they'd say something, which I realize is sort of appellant's point. If they, he couldn't hear it, he should have said something. I think his order is clear. I didn't know I didn't hear it because the key testimony was about two lines in a long, long interview of lots of circumstantial evidence. So those two lines are incredibly key lines and it's akin to an, a, a judge not hearing you know, hearing somebody say something and not hearing the, and not being able to hear the not in the statement um, and not realizing that. And so um, I, I, would, I, I would submit that <clears throat> the reason we appealing would not be satisfactory is because had we appealed at that moment, number one, um, the dismissal, um, I believe, failure to prove by clear, cogent, convincing evidence, the grounds for the, for the appeal um, would have been that we did present clear, cogent, convincing evidence, and I, I believe in that situation either there would be a, a f affirmation because of the standard of, of review, but or a remand for the court to enter findings as to credibility of witnesses because they were conflicting. I was trying to, frankly, not have to go there, um, and I realized that that there is case law that talks about well, you can't just do this to try to avoid an appeal, and I realized that, however. Um, if, if the trial court judge is quite frankly the best and only appropriate person to say what they heard, what they meant, and whether they made a mistake, then I can't ask this court whether 
you thought the trial judge heard it. I can't ask this court whether you should tell the trial judge, um, you know, to um, listen to it again and make sure you heard it. Um, you know, this court is going to be limited on appeal and as to what it can address. And if the judge truly didn't hear it, then he can correct it. On the other hand, the motion gave him a clear opportunity to say, no, I heard it just fine. Um, I, I can tell you there's an amount of nail biting that goes into writing a motion to a judge that says, I don't think you heard this right. So, so there is an inherent protection in this rule being abused because judges don't go around saying, oh yeah, never mind, I didn't mean that. And let's so, talk about okay. the motions and the probably number one issue that needs to be addressed yes. is whether or not the court even had jurisdiction because there was an order, right? an order, not a voluntary dismissal, Correct. an order of dismissal which presumably terminates the jurisdiction of the trial court. So mm -hmm. if the trial court's jurisdiction is terminated, you can't really revive it. So right. explain to me what your position is as to how the court even had jurisdiction to hear the motions in the first place. Right. So, Your Honor, I understand that that rule, um, rule 60, I'm sorry, uh, it's rule 201. 201, thank you. Uh, it does state that. Um, I believe that there's two main things for the court to consider. Number one, trial courts actually do maintain a sliver of jurisdiction. And we know this because they're in the juvenile code. Um, the courts still continue to do reviews, permanency planning hearings. Can't change a plan. Or, I'm sorry, you can't remove reunification. And you can't um, uh, terminate. Um, That's what the case is on appeal, but this case wasn't right. on appeal. Right. This case no, has been dismissed. No, I understand. I'm simply citing, I'm, I'm explaining that I believe that there are occasions, and that is one of them, where the court does retain a small sliver of jurisdiction. The other um, reason for that is that, um, is that when the court, um, when the court ruled and then realized it made a mistake, um, the change, while the, the ultimate impact of the change was substantive, the, the realizing of the mistake was um, correcting the rule, I'm sorry, correcting the order that actually divested the court of jurisdiction. So I believe the way the rule is written, it is intended to say, okay, court, you dismiss this. We can't come in and ask you to um, address placement or address custody or anything without having a pleading before the court, a petition, new petition, that kind of thing. But in this case, the court said, oh, wait, 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 before you walk out the door, I, I, I didn't mean that. So I need to correct that, um, not literally, but in that, in that is essentially what they're doing. And to say that, no, strike the pin, you're done, and you cannot revisit your own ruling so is distinct from changing custody. Trial courts, though, don't necessarily that same day enter an order, and certainly didn't here. And so somebody prepared the order. Right. And so I would presume then that all counsel got copies of the order before it was signed by the judge and filed by the clerk. So uh, if that occurred, why wasn't there some discussion before the entry of the order of dismissal? Um, well, Your Honor, um, to be totally honest, when we went back and were, at, as I said, scratching our heads trying to figure out what happened and what our options were, um, the DSS attorney is who prepares the orders for the judge to review and the parties to look at. And the, order, the, the rules very clearly say you can't even do any of this and talk about it until you um, so I can't ex parte the judge, and I remember. But you can file a motion before the entry of the order, right? Because the order isn't an order until it is reduced to writing, signed by the judge, and filed with the clerk. So well, I guess. And there have been a motion prior to the actual 
order of dismissal, such as yeah. in the case in which you cite uh, in one of the pleadings that the Rule 59 mom was in criminal court in Buncombe County, mm -hmm. kind of missed the termination prior to the entry of the order. She files a Rule 59, which may have been appropriate because there hadn't been an order entered yet. Right. Right. So, Your Honor, I guess I was, I'm frankly, under the belief, possibly mistaken, but that the order had to be entered in order for the court to reconsider its ruling. Um, prior to that, um, I didn't, and, and those happen essentially simultaneously if we get the timestamps. It was discussion with attorneys, file it, and then this is the way we address this versus the either new petition or the appeal. Um, so, I don't know if that was, you know, better or worse, but I think. It's a, the same reason that the, that counsel didn't speak up during the trial, which was, I, I have about ten seconds. I, I'll give I you, see that. You, I'll give you yes. a minute to. I see uh, that, um, Your Honor. I would just um, close by saying that um, there are occasions where the court retains a sliver of jurisdiction. Um, may I have a few seconds to conclude? Um, thank you. Where the court retains a sliver of jurisdiction when cases go on appeal, um, and. The alternatives of waiting until domestic violence occurs again in front of the child or to the child or in filing a new petition or appealing when I believe this court probably couldn't fashion a remedy that actually addresses the issue, which is the court not hearing something, are not adequate. And there needs to be room for a court to revisit its own order that, does, that could be, I believe, consistent with the language of the, the Rule 201. So thank you, Your Honors. Um, appreciate your time. And we would just ask that. Um, you um, affirm the judge's adjudication in this case. Thank you so Thank much, you. counsel. All right. About nine minutes and 17 seconds left for rebuttal. May it please the court. So I think uh, the petitioners have said a lot. I don't think they've adequately addressed the questions that are before this court. Um, so I think they're basically, their answer to all of the questions are that this is what they want, so you should give it to them. Um, and I think that's sort of what they were saying before the trial court as well, that we had a chance to present a video here, but um, we're sort of at a loss as to how you didn't rule in our favor, so um, why don't you read this again and give us a ruling in our favor? Um, and the juvenile code needs to allow us this opportunity to, to do this again. I don't, I don't think they've given you any kind of legal answers as to how it's permissible under the plain language of the juvenile code or how Rule 59 or 60, if there is jurisdiction, would allow a second bite at the apple. Um, they seem to be muddling different rules of law or provisions of the juvenile code in an attempt, again, to, to arrive at some sort of answer as to how this is permissible, and we don't think it is. So let's start with, again, we think there's no subject matter jurisdiction. I think that's clear, uh, at least in our, in our version, in our reading of the law. But Considering it just Rule 5960, again, we don't think it's a question of discretion. We think it's a question of de novo review because this is what they said before the trial court. What they said on an argument on the motion was this is a legal issue with legal arguments. Now, I don't know how that gets discretionary review, but I, we think it's entitled to de novo review. We also think that, so they're, they're horse swapping. Uh, they're, they're Rule 5960 uh, sub, subsections. So before the trial court, they argued 59A7, 59A9, and 60B6. 
So 59A7 says that the verdict is contrary to the law or there's insufficient evidence to support the verdict. 60B6 and 59A9 are the extraordinary circumstance provisions. Now, in their filings before this court and in their oral argument today, um, they seem to have mainly focused on 60B1, which they're labeling as a mistake subsection. There's other provisions in 60B1, but mistake is one of those. 60B1 wasn't raised before the trial court. Uh, in their response to our PwC, they also mentioned 59A1, which would be that there is an irregularity preventing a fair trial. Um, and then they also mentioned 59A9 and 60B6 again. So they went from saying insufficient evidence to support the verdict or that it was contrary to law or to 59A7, and then before this court saying 59A1 and 60B1, irregularity preventing a fair trial or a mistake of some kind. So they, they mentioned Pope v. Pope in, our, in, our, in our, my brief um, that the subsection mentioned doesn't matter. I think that's a question before the trial court. I think if you make a motion before the trial court citing one section of 59 or 60, and then the trial court says, okay, well, let's maybe give you relief under this, this sort of related subsection. I think that's the question. I don't think Pope v. Pope stands for the, the rule of law that you can make one argument to the trial court, and then before this court, swap horses to say a different subsection of the post-trial motion applies. So I, I don't think, I, I think the difficulty they're having is trying to figure out how to say the, plainly what's happened here. They got a chance to present their case. They presented a video and they lost. And now they're trying to say that, well, the order needed credibility determinations and findings in it. So there's two cases in our briefs that say that the proper mechanism to get findings in an order after there has been, after there has been a, a ruling by the judge is Rule 52. Rule 52 says we're, we're going to appeal, but we need more findings in this order so that the appellate court can understand the trial court's ruling. That's Rule 52. And that's under... Uh, Reins v. WB Towing and KSLLC versus Gilmore. Those are both in our briefs, um, and I can supply the court with the uh, sites if they need them. But basically, both of those say that you don't use Rule 59 and 60 to get more findings in an order that's been entered. You instead use Rule 52A so that the appellate court has a better understanding of the trial court's uh, fact-finding. So Rule 59 and 60 also wouldn't apply to get credibility determinations once there's been entry of order. Um, let's see. So they used a variety of examples to try to somehow uh, analyze, to somehow try to describe the situation. They said this is like a week-long hearing um, where a judge has, has sort of been doing a lot of things and then spends a while before he comes to his order. This was a hearing that took place one day, maybe a couple of hours total. The primary evidence they're talking about is a, is a one-hour-long video interview. And then the trial court entered oral rendition that day saying that he was deciding against the department and that he found the child articulate, but DSS should have presented more evidence. So I don't, I don't think the week-long analogy is going to work here. Also, uh, the trial court saying, before you walk out the door, let's, let's fix this issue. Well, they had been walked out of the door for six weeks before DSS filed a motion to say, um, maybe we should look at this again because we think this is clear and convincing evidence of neglect. So I don't think, again, I don't think these analogies are applicable on these facts. I think what happened here is fairly simple and straightforward, that they got a chance to present their case, and the judge was not convinced by their evidence, and that's what he said, and then they entered an order to that effect. Um, I think the juvenile code, so, so just reiterating a few arguments, again, we think there's no subject matter jurisdiction. We think Rule 59 and 60, if there is any kind of jurisdiction, wouldn't allow this kind of motion on these facts because it's a second bite at the apple. But we also think, if we're just looking broadly at the purposes of the juvenile code, they don't really promote this kind of outcome um, because 7B100 talks about the purposes of 
the principles of the juvenile code that talk about finality and permanence for the children. So, so here we have a case where these children went home with their family and the trial court had said there's no safety risk here, there's no neglect, so that's why we're returning them to their parents, to pre-petition status and dissolving non-secure custody. But then six weeks later, uh, DSS files this motion and somehow they're able to get custody. That, that disrupts the finality here. It disrupts the, the children's permanence in their home. And again, it's not based on anything different. They, they also said that the transcript was stronger evidence than the video, and it's a well-known rule of law, and I cited Adams v. Tester in my brief, that says that the trial court gets to detect the tenors and flavors and demeanor and tone of a live person, not a, not a document. The reason that appellate courts don't get into fact-finding is because the cold record isn't as good as a person. Now, we're not dealing with a, a live witness here. We're dealing with a video, but a video is still a video of a person talking is better evidence than a, a document. If, if, it, if it were the opposite, then this court could just make findings based on what the transcript says. But that's, again, this is not a fact-finding court. Um, and the trial court clearly decided this issue already before. And, and even though Rule 52 goes to um, how you are supposed to get fact-finding into an order, I, I don't know how there's any doubt about what the trial court thought about the credibility when it dismissed the petition. I don't know how there's any inference possible other than that the trial court thought that DSS did not present enough evidence, and that is sort of a de facto credibility determination. I don't know that there's any requirement that there have to be specific findings saying how the department didn't present enough evidence. I think the dismissal on its face is enough, and again, Rule 52A gives us, um, it, it explains what's supposed to happen, uh, that they're supposed to file a notice of appeal and file Rule 52A motion asking for more findings in a dismissal order if they intend to go that route. Um, and as to whether or not you can get a second bite at the apple based on the same evidence, I, I, in our memorandum of additional authority, the first one, I, um, this goes back to the principle of finality. I think I cited a few cases that talk about how old of a rule of law this is. So if you look at uh, Cathay v. Cathay, um, that says that the courts and the public are interested in the finality of litigation. There is no area of law requiring more finality and stability than family law. And Horn, which is not a family law case, but it basically promotes also the end of litigation as well. That says that there should be an end of litigation for the repose of society. And um, that's a North Carolina Supreme Court case from the 1930s, so it's about 100 years old. And it it, it, it says the same thing that Throckmorton does, which is U.S. Supreme Court case from the 1890s. So we have two over roughly 100-year-old cases here, quoting Lord Keeper from 1702, who says that new matter may be in some cases be ground for relief, but it must not be what was tried before. So we have a 300-and-some-year-old uh, oh, rule of law that says that if you want relief after there's been entry of judgment and a trial on the merits, you don't get it for presenting the same evidence again. So again, we would ask this court to conclude there was no subject matter jurisdiction and uh, dismiss all post-dismissal orders as void for lacking subject matter jurisdiction or in, or in the alternative, conclude there was no clear and convincing evidence or find proper findings as a matter of law uh, and return the parties to pre-petition status. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, counsel. Thank you all for your great arguments. And this case is now submitted and we are adjourned.